0: Well, if you would, turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 12. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 19 this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can share with your neighbor, or there should be some Bibles in the pew there in front of you. If you've not been here to Bloomfield before, we are walking through the book of Acts. We, we walk through it chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And so a summary of what we've covered in the first 11 verses is simply this. Uh, What you have is after Jesus Christ has been crucified and resurrected, He then comes and teaches His disciples what they are to do next. And He tells them they're going to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to be witnesses, to go to all the nations and to make disciples, to teach them about the gospel. And so He says, you'll be witnesses in Jerusalem. Well, that's, that's where they were when He said that in Judea and Samaria, which was the surrounding area, and ultimately to the ends of the earth. But what we found in our study of Acts is that in the initial chapters, the disciples stayed there in Jerusalem until they faced persecution. That came in Acts chapter 7, Acts chapter 8, when Stephen, who was one of the followers of Christ, gave testimony to the gospel and he was beaten to death. He was the first martyr there in the church of Christ in Jerusalem. And so after he is martyred, great persecution comes to the church at the hands of a man named Saul. And so then you see the disciples start to spread out. Then they go to Samaria and they go throughout those regions. And the gospel begins going then, not just to the Jewish people, but to the Gentile people. And so we've read not only how Peter has taken the gospel to Cornelius, we read about how the disciples went to Antioch. We talked about how Antioch was, was the sin city of the Roman Empire. It was the place, the, the, the last place anyone would think that an evangelistic crusade would take place, and yet it's there in Antioch that many turn to the light of the gospel and their lives are radically changed. Along the way, the great persecutor Saul is converted to the faith as well, but the persecution doesn't end. In fact, the persecution grows, and that's where we find ourselves picking up in Acts chapter 12. Now, the persecution of the church is coming at the hands of a man named Herod the king. And so today we'll read about how he put James to death, but how God has other plans at this point for Peter. And as we read this, I hope that God will help us all to better understand the plans he has for our lives, understand the gospel of Christ, understand what it means to have a right relationship with Him through repentance and faith. If you're new to Bloomfield, we we believe this is the inspired Word of God. This is God's Word to us today. So many people in our culture will say things like, I I wish God would tell me. I I just wish God would show me. Well friends, He has told and He has shown and it is here before us. So out of reverence for it, if you're able, if you would stand as I read this passage for us today. Acts chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread, and When he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer was made for him to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and centuries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and the light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real. He thought he was seeing a vision. But when they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street. And immediately the angel left. When Peter came to himself, he said, And now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. But they said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. And then he departed and went to another place. If you would pray with me. Father, The only real, lasting change that will come to our lives today will be that change that You bring through the power of Your Holy Spirit. And so we ask that Your Spirit might change us today, that we might better understand this Word, and more importantly, that we might apply it to our lives. I pray, Lord, for those here who have yet to respond to the Gospel, that they would come to see the richness and the beauty of it and bend their knee to the cross. I pray, Lord, for those here today, who are struggling with worry and anxiety and stress and so many other things, that they come to see what it truly means to trust You. I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. If you were with us last Lord's Day, Pastor Nick did a great job sharing with us from God's Word the the importance of, of, of understanding... The the role of suffering in the life of the believer. He specifically pointed to the biblical teaching that we should not be surprised when we suffer. as though something strange were happening to us, and yet even in light of that clear teaching from the Scripture, aren't we so often surprised by suffering? You often hear people say, well, I just don't know why this is happening to me. Well, because Jesus said it would. That might be one reason. But but we tend to think somehow that, that as Christians that, that we're safe, that we're, that we're insulated, that, that nothing harmful could ever happen to us, that we, that we shouldn't suffer because we have faith in Christ and that if we just have enough faith, then we won't have suffering. But God's Word tells us otherwise. And it tells us that not only should we not be surprised when we suffer, but we should understand that, that God will use our suffering ultimately for His glory and for our own growth as believers. And one of the ways that we find in the Scripture that that suffering can come to us is through the attacks of the enemy. And we see that very clearly in today's passage. What we see here are the the violent hands of Herod, but ultimately what we see here are the violent hands of the enemy. who, Who from the very foundation of the world has sought to be against god and his will and his people and so all the way back in genesis in the garden in creation in genesis chapter 3 the enemy comes into the sanctuary of the garden and what does he say he tells adam and eve you, you can't trust god surely god didn't say to you this when he basically tempts them to believe is that Perhaps God doesn't have the best for them in mind. And that that, that they need, if they want the best, they need to reach out and take it for themselves. Was old a tactic as that is, he hasn't needed to change it, has he? And we see the same tactic of the same enemy at work in Matthew chapter 4. After Jesus has been baptized and God has publicly declared, this is my son... Satan comes to Jesus and says, well, if you're really his son, same tactic. Question God, question his word, and even question if his will is the best for you. Because what does he do with Jesus? He says, listen, you you can be king of the world. You can have all these kingdoms if you'll simply bow down to me. Satan offers Jesus glory without suffering. We see that he does the same thing even in our lives today. He tempts believers to question God, question His Word, and question whether or not His will is really the best for you and I. And it is a question that tempts us to stray from God's Word when that question is partnered with suffering. Because many times for the believer, when we suffer, we too are tempted to think, God, do you really love me? God, do you you really have best for me because that's not what we're feeling when we suffer and then we come to passages like this where we see believers who face ultimately death for their faith and we're reminded of the schemes and attacks of the enemy and at the same time the gracious sovereign hand of god and so today i want to i want to look at this passage from that perspective one from the perspective of okay The enemy has not changed, so we need to recognize his tactics. We need to recognize what he's doing, because as we sang this morning, we're at war, we're in a battle here. The great news is we already know how the battle ends. We serve a victorious king, and our enemy is a defeated enemy. But in this moment where we sit, there is still attack and still battle, and we need to recognize that. And principally, we need to understand how then are we to respond to it. And so I hope you'll see those things as we walk through this passage today. Beginning with the first point there in your notes, we recognize that the the enemy attacks Christ's church with violent hands. With violent hands. We read that at the very beginning of this text. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some, who belong to the church. Now, if you're a student of the Scripture, if you've been with us as we've studied Acts and as we studied Matthew, you know that 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 name comes up often, Herod. It's important to recognize we're not talking about the same Herod all the time. Uh, This Herod here was Herod Agrippa I. His grandfather was Herod the Great. Herod the Great's the one you read about there at the beginning of the Gospels who brought on that slaughter of male infants in Bethlehem, when he heard from the wise men from the east that they had come to worship a newborn king. And threatened by that newborn king, he, like this Herod, his grandson thinks that somehow he can squash the plan of God. Well, he failed, and this one will as well. But that this is his grandson, Herod Agrippa I, and And it's important to recognize that because it helps us kind of put a timeline together here. Uh, We know that Herod Agrippa I historically reigned from AD 41 to AD 44. Uh, We also, our best speculation about the crucifixion of Christ is that happened about AD 33. So when you put all that together, you recognize that there were almost 10 years now into the life of the New Testament church. That's important because as we read Acts 1 through 11, it's kind of easy to think, Well, this happened one day, and this happened the next day, and this happened the next day. No, there's years taking place here. And that's important to recognize because during those years, people are being killed. During those years, people are suffering greatly. But during those years, the church is continuing to grow. And we will see it grow even at the attacks of violent hands against it in this passage read in verse 2 that these violent hands lead Herod then to to kill James. And just as there are multiple Herods mentioned, there are more than one James in the scripture. There's of course James, the brother, or you may refer to him as the half-brother of Jesus. That's not the James here. This this is James, the brother of John, the, the sons of Zebedee. Jesus called them the sons of thunder. And you may remember some of the encounters that you see there in the scripture some of the times that james and john are with jesus because because there was this very close-knit group of disciples within the disciples peter james and john and that these were three men that christ spent a lot of time with he poured his life into he loved them he taught them and he was very gracious to them because because sometimes they would they would ask him things they didn't quite realize what they were asking (laughs) thinking of themselves a bit more than anything else. And so there's that that situation there in Mark chapter 10 where where James and John go to Jesus and say, okay, Jesus, in your glory, how about me and my brother sit at your right and your left? Is that okay? (laughs) And Jesus, in His grace, He just looks to them and He says, "You, you don't know what you're asking for. But they persist, and so Jesus says, okay. The cup that I drink, you will drink. They didn't know what that cup was going to be, but Jesus did. That that would be the cup he would drink when he went to the cross and he died for their sin and our sin and took on the penalty of sin that we all deserve and in exchange gave us a righteousness that we don't through our repentance and faith. That, that's what he's saying to, to James and to John. You want this cup? Well, this is a cup you can have, but it means you're going to suffer. And we see the fruition of what Jesus says to them in Acts chapter 12, where what happens? James suffers. Scripture reminds us that he suffers with the sword. Friends, that that means that Herod cut off his head. That's not the first time we've seen a Herod cut off someone's head, is it? John the Baptist, that great proclaimer of the truth, that forerunner of Christ, he's put to death by another Herod. (laughs) Uh, Herod Antipas, it was that Herod who was the son of Herod the Great. And he did not want to respond to the truth that John was sharing with him and with the wickedness that was going on in his family. And so how did that Herod respond? With the sword. He took off his head. And we may think of that in the context of this time and think, well, well I guess that's just what people did, but consider this. The enemies are still taking off the heads of believers today with the sword. If you have opened up a paper or turned on the news in recent months and recent years, you have seen reports of tens, twenties, individuals, thirties, forties over here at the hands of ISIS losing their heads. Have you ever stopped when you see that and wonder, why the sword? I mean, we live in a day and age where there's no end to the number of weapons they could use. So so why are they going to what seems like an ancient practice to pick up a sword? and, And why cut off their head? Well, I think there's something to this. You see, the Scripture tells us in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God looks to the enemy, and what does he say to him? You're, you're gonna strike at his heel. Speaking of the the, the seed of Eve, the, the sons and daughters of Eve, you're gonna strike at their heel, but listen, listen, one's gonna come, and what's he gonna do? He's gonna crush your head, is what he's gonna do. And from that moment forward, we have an enemy who knows his fate and knows that it's his head that's on the line. But what does he do? He hates the people of God. And so I, I think there's something to that. He knows his fate. He knows what's going to happen to his head. So he's going to seek to do what? I'm going to take the heads of these people who follow Christ. And he thinks in doing it, that he's somehow going to thwart the growth of the church, that he's somehow going to squash out this movement. That's what Herod's doing here. Herod wants to please the Jews. How's he going to please them? I'm going to put an end to this thing called Christianity. Put them in prison, that's not enough. Publicly ridiculing them and arresting them, that's not it. But I take the sword to their head, and this is going to end. And a century later, Tertullian would write, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. See, the enemy's best efforts, his violent hands against those of faith, may we serve as a catalyst to do what? to grow the church and the people of God. Friends, Christianity does not spread and grow by the sword. Christianity grows and spreads under the sword. It has for generations and it will to the return of Christ. And that's why you look around the world today and you look to those nations that are facing real persecution. You look to those nations where people are literally losing their heads with the sword. You look to those nations where people can't gather freely like we do. And they are being slaughtered for their faith. And guess what else you find? You find in those same places the church growing more than it's growing anywhere else in the world today. And then you look to those places where there's relatively little persecution. And what do you find? You find the church struggling. You find the church dying. And friends, that, that, that's a warning for us. We better wake up to that. Because as much as we might throw that term around, persecution, there's not a person in this room who's truly faced it the way James did. Not, not one of us got out of the bed this morning and, and looked over to our husband to our kids to our grandkids got on the phone and called a loved one and said to them something to the effect of i may never talk to you again because i've decided to go worship with an assembly of believers today not not one of us i would assume tried to find some type of secret route to get to church today in case we were followed We didn't have somebody standing at the doors to to check you in to verify who you were. We're not meeting down in the basement where nobody can find us. Why? Because we don't have anything to fear in that regard in our nation. But friends, there are people today. That is their reality. And we might look at that and say, oh, poor them. Poor us. They're the ones where the church is growing. They're the ones where people are getting saved right and left. And we're the ones who are just kind of straggling along. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And the wake-up call for us is that very well may be exactly what it takes for the church to grow in our nation today when the sword comes. Are you ready for that? If if that's what's on the line, are you willing to be a part of that? For those of you who are with us Wednesday night as we gathered for our Bible study and prayer time, we had a a missionary there with us who who shared about being in a part of the world where death by the sword for their faith is a present reality. And he shared this. He shared that believers there have said to him, we are praying for your nation to experience persecution like we do. Because nothing will grow your church more than this type of persecution. And as he shared that, I looked around the room. I didn't see one person saying, bring it on. (laughs) I saw people going, are you serious? (laughs) You you think about that. We want to see our church grow. We want to see people come to Christ. But if that means that our heads are on the line. If that means your children's heads and your grandchildren's heads are on the line, are you going to come next Lord's Day and the one after that knowing it might be your last? And that starts getting to the root of this issue. Do we really trust God? Do we really believe in God? And are we really living in light of eternity and the reality of a new heaven and a new earth with God? Are we just seeking to be a little bit religious in this life and try our best and be as comfortable as we can? only you can answer that question this morning friend but it gets to the heart of the gospel because the gospel helps us to understand we do not live for this world we live for the one to come the gospel helps us to see we are strangers in a strange land you turn on the tv and shake your head and say i can't believe that's on there i can't believe people are the way they are well you should believe it because we're strangers This isn't our home. But the sad reality is most of of us, this is the one we want. We just want it to be a little bit moral, more moral. We want to shine it up and make it look better. But Christ has promised us so much more. And even when the enemy seeks to put it into it, we're we're reminded that Christ is the one with victory. James goes before Herod. The sword comes down. He loses his head. He opens his eyes. And there is Christ. Christus Victor. Christ has won. Death cannot defeat Him or those who love Him. The enemy hasn't won there. Pastor John Piper, in speaking on this passage, I heard a while back, he he made a great point. He said, it's easy for us to read Acts chapter 12. the, The death of Herod, the deliverance of Peter, and somehow think... It's one to one. God's got one. Satan's got one. Friends, it is two to zero. This is all happening in the sovereign hand of God. He will grow his church even through this suffering and this attack of the enemy. But we still need to recognize it. Point two, the enemy also attacks Christ's church with religious hands. And this is one that that, that we can easily find ourselves on the wrong side of if we're not careful. Here, Herod says, other the text tells us about Herod, he, he saw that this pleased the Jews. That tells us something about his motivation. He, he is excited because the Jews are excited. See, for, for Herod to have power, for him to rule, he, he needs to have people who are pleased with him. And we know at this time, the Jews are pleased when he puts James to death. James is one of the chief leaders in the church. Right beside him, you've got Peter. And so what does he do? Hey, they loved it when I took off James's head, so bring me another. I'm going to take off his head, and I'm going to please the people. But he's got one problem. They're religious. And there's a religious celebration going on. An annual celebration of the Passover. And with the Passover, this seven-day celebration of the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And they're so religious that they're not going to dare kill one of these Christians during their religious festival. They're going to wait till after their religious festival and then go ahead and kill them. Now, I'm guessing that most of us in this room, we probably don't know a ton about the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at least from experience. I mean, some of you may. Some of you may have been raised in an environment where you knew about this. But for most of us, we read about that. We read about other feasts. It's kind of foreign to us. So it's helpful just to take a moment to understand a little bit more what this is. We read about it in Exodus chapter 12. I'll read just a few verses for you to help you see the, the picture of what this is for. This day shall be for you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. He's speaking here of the Passover, which would commemorate... Their exodus from Egypt, from slavery. It would commemorate how the angel of death passed over those Jewish people, did not take the lives of their children, and thus they were freed and they fled from Egypt. And he wanted them to remember this, but not just through that meal. Throughout your generations as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. Unleavened bread was bread without leaven. I'd have to be a biblical scholar to figure that one out. So what's leaven? Well, leaven is essentially the, the yeast component of the bread. makes the bread rise. But here God says, Nope, I, I want you to eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. So it's not enough they're going to eat unleavened bread. He says to them, I don't even want leaven in your houses. And, and listen to what he tells them. For if anyone eats what is leavened on the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. And he goes on to basically said, if they don't get the leaven out of their house, you remove them from the people of Israel. That's a pretty severe consequence. Now, it helps then to, to better understand a little bit about what that is he's asking them to do. See, leaven was a very fine, fine, powdery substance, a yeast-like substance. And when they cooked with it, which they did all the time, it was likely to get all over the place. And God is saying to them, I want you not just to remove the leaven container from your pantry and put it on your patio. He says, go through your house and I want all the leaven gone. And that's a nearly impossible task. You might think of it, of it this way. We're doing some remodeling in our home right now. And my my least favorite, however you say that, the job I don't like the most, is drywall. If you could just slap it up, put it up there, done, that's great. But all the sanding, and putting up all the stuff, if you've ever done that, you know that that, that real fine material, it gets everywhere. And so what do you do? You kind of tape up those rooms if you think ahead. Or if you're like me, you don't. And then months later, you're finding drywall dust four rooms away. You pull out a DVD, and there it is inside the DVD somehow. I mean, that stuff gets everywhere. That, that is what leaven was to the Jewish people. When they cooked, when they baked, That they, they didn't have ten-room homes. They shared rooms for multiple purposes. Leaven got everywhere. And so when God says, remove it all from your house, He was asking them to do something that was almost impossible to do. Because as much as they try to remove it and sweep it up and wipe things down, they were going to find it somewhere else. There's someone, a grape leaf, we forgot about that. There's someone, a piece of clothing, we missed that. Ah, we just moved this bowl, we found some under there. And so what's God doing here? Why would God ever tell His people, I want you to do something that they couldn't fully do on their own? Why would God tell His people, I want you to clean the leaven out of your houses when they could never get all the leaven out of their house? Because friends, what God was doing there is what He's doing throughout the law. He's helping them to understand they can never clean themselves on their own. That they can never live so righteously and religiously that they can clean up their life on their own. He's saying to them what, what Paul later says about leaven. He equates leaven to sin. So this is what this is for us. You, you look at your life right now, and maybe there's something in your life that you know it's wrong. You know it's sin. And you know you shouldn't do it. But why do we sin? Because we, we want to do it. And we don't want to do it. And after we do it, we don't like that we did it. But then we go back and we do it again. And so what do we do? We get out our brooms and we sweep it up and we clean it up and we clean all the leaven out of our house. And then one night we move a bowl and there's some leaven. (laughs) And then one night we we click a button on our computer and there's an opportunity to sin. And we realize that in our own effort, we we can't clean out our heart. That's the issue here. And how ironic then is it that the Jewish people would be so religious that they wouldn't dare kill someone during the Passover celebration. They they were so religious, they would spend a week trying to sweep the leaven out of their homes, trying to clean their homes, but they would completely miss... That there was one there sharing the gospel with him that says, listen, no matter how hard you try, you can't clean your own heart. And that's why Christ came. He was perfect. He was sinless, friends. And He went to the cross with no sin. And He took on sin and the consequence of it for us. For us who have tried so hard to sweep our houses clean, there's still sin there. Not one of us will stand before God and have God say to us, you sure did clean your life up well. You sure were good at righteousness. When I looked from the throne of heaven, I said, man, Richard, that guy's holy. (laughs) Consider what has gone through your mind in the last 24 hours. Consider on your best day the things that maybe you don't say them or act on them, but, that, but they come into your mind. Consider the wickedness and the depravity, not just of our world, but of you. And what the gospel says to us is that there are corners in our home that no matter how hard we try, we can't clean them. But Christ says, I am here to sweep the house. <laughs> and He gives us a clean heart and He cleans us from the inside out. Religion says it's going to clean us from the outside in. And some of you have been raised in very religious homes, very religious places, very religious churches. And so you have learned how to be religious. You've learned the right way to act and talk and speak and dress so that it appears from the outside everything's okay. But your heart is full of leaven, it's full of sin. And one day, we, like James, will appear before God. And there will be a reckoning. And friends, based on what I understand from God's word, I think God will care about this much for how religious we were. What he will do is he will look at you and he will look at I and we will either be those who repented and placed our faith in Christ, who died on the cross for us, or we will be those who were religious and said, I got this taken care of. See, religion allows us to pick and choose that, what we, that part of our house we're going to clean and that part we're not. <laughs> kind of like if you come to my house for dinner. We got four kids. If you've got kids, you know you can clean the house and five seconds later, blows up. Stuff's everywhere. So if you come to my house, I'll probably show you most rooms except there's always that one room, you know, where you throw everything right before somebody comes over. Not Sandy, she cleans everything. Talking about me here. That, that, that one closet, you know, oh, just, what are we, just throwing stuff in the right and left, and then later on, where's the checkbook? Oh, it's in the refrigerator. Why would we put it in the refrigerator? You know, you just... That, that's kind of what religion's like, isn't it? We get that front room really clean, hallway. Any room that's got an exposed window. But there's always that room that's not clean. There's always that part of our life that, that, that we don't want to clean because it, it draws us in. It, it, it's what we want. There's always that place where the leaven, where the sin, it's there. No matter if anybody else sees it or not. And so the Jewish people here, the irony is, they, they are going to scrub that house down and have a clean house, but they won't have a clean heart. And, and the scary thing about that, friends, is that God then uses them or excuse me, the enemy uses them in their religion to do his bidding. Religious people can be on the wrong side. Baptists can be on the wrong side. We can get so concerned about making things look clean that we completely ignore. The gospel is there that says we can't do it on our own, no matter how hard we try. Because some of us, honestly, we want to try... So we can say, look what I did. See, that's how you know. How, How do you know if you're motivated by religion? Because it comes down to what you did, not what Jesus has done. It's about you and your abilities and efforts and gifts. It's not about Christ. And for these Jewish people, it certainly wasn't about Jesus. But for James and for Peter and John and others, it was. So how were they to respond? How were we to respond when the enemy brings the sword or when he just brings an extra dose of religion. Point three, when we battle the enemy, we're to respond not with the sword, but on our knees. Notice here, the church doesn't take to the streets. Verse six, they, they gather and they pray. You think about that for a moment. For those of you on social media, you're watching... Whatever feed it is, and you're looking, and all of a sudden this story pops up. And it's it's the latest atrocity of what ISIS has done to believers. It's the latest list of martyrs, and you look at it, and you are sickened by it. What do you do? Click a little button to share it with your friends, and then you watch a video of a cat eating a Snickers bar. (laughs) I better share that too. It doesn't affect us. We're just going to the next item. But here the church was affected and moved to the point that they prayed for Peter. And I have no doubt they, they prayed for James too. And they prayed for these men fervently. They gathered and they prayed. And notice what Peter did. Verse 6. The night before he's going to lose his head. All indications are, he is next. The sword is coming at him. And the night before, he stayed up all night worried and stressed and fretted and didn't sleep. No. The night before, that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers. (laughs) I don't think that's because Peter was narcoleptic or something, you know. Just couldn't stay awake. He was real worn out. Building a church and all. And I think this says something about Peter and something about prayer. Years before this, Peter and the disciples looked to Jesus. And they say, Lord, could, could you teach us how to pray like you pray? We've been taught... Religious ways to pray, but when you pray, there's something different going on here. You you have this 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 union with God, and when you pray, things happen. And Lord, can you teach us how to pray that way? And Jesus and His grace and His goodness. Well, yeah, I'm, Peter, I'll teach you how to pray. Peter, James, John, come over. I'll teach you how to pray. You remember what He taught them? Your will. Be done. Think about that. When you think about what Peter prayed the night before he was going to lose his head. And I think we get some insight to Peter's prayer life and why he could sleep. Father, Father, they took James' head and tomorrow they want to take mine. But this isn't about me. It's about you. And so, Father, your will be done. There's no indication in the text that Peter had any idea that God would deliver him the way he did. In fact, when it's happening, did you notice what takes place there? Peter thinks he's dreaming. <laughs> Peter's not like, woo, angel, I've been waiting for you. Let's go. Get these, can you get these chains off real quick? Let me put my cloak on. Do a little victory dance as he's walking out of the prison. Now Peter's walking around. and He's just like, I gotta be sleeping. I don't know what's going on. This is a vision. It's a dream. It, it, there's this sense where he's kind of coming to, even after it's over. You, you ever wake up from a dream and you're just like, okay, I don't know if that's real. I don't know if that's not real. I, I don't. I don't know if I just shot the neighbor's dog. I don't know what I just did. And it takes you a minute, kind of regroup and go, okay, whoo, where, where am I? That's kind of what Peter's doing here. Peter was not expecting this based on what we read in the text. But Peter responds to it. And I think him sleeping tells us something about the fact that he trusted in the sovereignty of God. Not expecting that God would deliver him, but probably fully expecting that he would lose his head. But expecting, Lord, if that's your will, I'll take it. And we can't sleep the night before a big test. Got a big meeting tomorrow. I don't, I don't know if I'll sleep a wink tonight. That w- when our team's in a championship game, we have trouble sleeping. <laughs> and that may say a lot of things, but I think one thing it may say is maybe the reason that you and I are so stressed and so worried and so concerned that we can't even sleep is maybe we're spending a little bit more time praying about our will being done and a little less time praying about God's will being done. And so our prayer life tends to be "Lord, Lord, here's what I want, here's what I desire. Lord, would you do this for me? Would you work this thing out? Lord, here's what I'm working on. Would you, would you bless it, Lord? Would you take care of this, Lord? Lord, a house is for sale. you got to sell this house, Lord. i got this job interview. you got to give me this job, Lord. Lord, kids are applying for this and they got this. And, and so we just kind of take our will and our lives. And say, Lord, would you just stamp this for me? <laughs> but what would it look like on the night before the blade took off her head to say? Why, why would Peter pray that way? Because, folks, he served a king who prayed that way. Who the night before he went to the cross said, what? God, not, not your will, but, not my will, but Lord, Lord your will be done. Oh, for us to pray that way. Knowing that that will may be our suffering. And it may be the deaths and the suffering of people we love. But to say, Lord, your will is more important than my will. That, that's the way we see Peter praying. That, that's the way I think we see the church praying. Although, though it's kind of interesting what happens here with the church. We'll talk a little bit more about this next week. But just kind of a summary. So Peter's delivered. And then notice what happens here. That the believers are gathered to pray. We don't know what they're praying. But but again, it would seem that they're not praying for Peter to be delivered. Because why? Because while they're praying, Hey guys, it's Peter! No, it's not. (laughs) Because Peter, he's going to get killed. In fact, maybe that's his ghost, but that's not him. Think about that. They, They are praying about Peter being in prison, God has delivered Peter. So, so God has done exceedingly abundantly beyond what they have actually asked. That's biblical. He shows up there, and they're so wrapped up in whatever it is they're praying for, that when Rhoda, the servant girl, comes and says, no, it's him, I heard him, it's him, they say, you are out of your mind. Perhaps, 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 their prayers were more guided by their circumstances than they were by their sovereign creator. See, sometimes that's what happens with us. We just kind of pray in light of our circumstances. So for them, okay, James was killed by Herod. So what's going to happen? Peter's going to be killed by Herod. That's, that's the circumstance. So maybe their prayers are more along the lines of, Lord, we, we just pray you would give Peter boldness, help him to be a bold witness before that sword comes down on his head. Hey guys, it's Peter! Stop, stop, we're praying. Lord, and and they're just so wrapped up in praying for what they think is going to happen that they don't stop and consider that God works the miraculous. Let me just ask a real question. When's the last time you prayed for God to do something miraculous? We often don't pray that way. Why? Because we don't want to be disappointed when He doesn't. He hadn't promised it to us, friends. But that doesn't mean we can't pray for it. And and I'm not talking about... I don't even want to get on the prosperity of God. But I'm not talking about these fools who say, if you have enough faith, it's going to happen. That is a lie from the devil. But, But I'm talking about praying to God and saying, Lord, your will be done, not mine. And Lord, if it be your will... Would you do this thing that I cannot do? Would you heal this person? Would you save this person? And praying for things that that they would just be a miracle if they happen. Why don't we pray that? And I think because in our prayer life, perhaps like other areas of our life, we're, we're kind of hedging our bets. We don't want to be let down or disappointed. Because the truth is, friend, when you pray for God to do something miraculous, and He doesn't, that's hard. And and you will wrestle with that. But that's a good wrestle. (laughs) Because it helps you to come to a better understanding of who a sovereign God is. It helps you then to better pray, Father, I don't understand it, didn't want it, wanted something different. Not my will, but your will be done. Oh, if we prayed that way, friends. Oh, if we prayed that way. And, and so I want to just ask you today to pray that way. <laughs> just to consider for a moment, what, what is it in your life, in our community, in our nation, in our world, that is going to take a miracle for it to happen? God didn't promise us a miracle. He's not there to do our bidding. We are here to do His. But what would it look like to so trust in His sovereignty and His goodness and His grace that we're willing to put it all on the line and get on our knees and say, Lord, you haven't promised this, but Lord, I'm going to ask for it. And when he doesn't do it, to say, Lord, you're still good. Not my will, but your will be done. And to keep going before him and trusting him for things that we can't do. Because there's a lot we can do. We can keep this little church thing moving along and do just fine. Or we can ask God for something greater. And that's going to take a miracle. It's a miraculous act for God to save our children. In our grandchildren. It's a miraculous thing for God to bring lost people in this community to faith in Christ. It's a miraculous thing for nations to respond to the Gospel. We can't do that in our power. And so I want to invite you today to pray that God would do that in His power. That there may be something very specific in your life that that the Lord through the Holy Spirit has already laid on your heart. Are you willing just to pray this and ask this? And trust God. Not that He'll necessarily do it, but that He's good either way. I want to invite you during our time of response to pray that way. Normally at the end of our time, we have a time of response, and I invite you to come forward if you want to join the church, if you want to pray, whatever it is. If if you've come today and you're desiring to join the church I will, I'll stick around, I'll talk to you about that afterwards, but I, I'm just going to get down on my knees and pray. That doesn't mean anybody else has to. You can pray there where you are, you can do whatever you want. I just invite you to consider responding to God's Word the way God's people responded in Acts chapter 12. And to ask God to do something that only God can do. So if you'll stand together as I pray for us going into this time. Father God, I, Lord, I'll, I'll be real honest. I don't know what to ask for. Because as much as I can preach about putting it all on the line and trusting you for miraculous things, Lord, it's a, it's a scary thing to do. Because how do we explain when you don't? So, Lord, I, I just, I just pray today that you would help every believer in this room to pray in light of what jesus said not our will but your will be done and father when your will involves suffering involves things that we would never choose or invite ourselves god would you strengthen us to live for christ in the midst of that lord help us to pray not for man-sized things that we can do on our own but but God, we pray for things that only you can do. Father, I pray for anybody here that's not a believer that you would save them. That's going to take a miracle. That's going to take a miracle. I-, I pray for those here today who are, are so set in their religion that they're-, they're more concerned right now about sweeping that house clean than they are about just trusting you and repenting and turning from their sin. I, I pray, God, for those here who-, who just like that picture that we have in the Scripture, of Peter in chains, Lord. People who are in chains to sin. God, I, I pray that you would, just as you released him and delivered him from that prison, that you would deliver them from that wickedness. And God, that you would help them just to repent and get clean, not on their own, but that you would do that work. Lord, I just pray. You would burden us all with your spirit just to, just to pray, God, for the salvation of our kids and our grandkids, for repentance in our church, for people who would come to faith in our community, whatever it is, God. I pray you would lead us and guide us in this time. In Christ's name we pray, amen.